morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Matthew chapter 19. I know it says Galatians up there, and we are in a series, completing a series on Galatians, but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to pray for us one more time before we begin, and then we will dive in. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. I want to thank you, Lord, for uh, calling us here uh, to be here together as family. I thank you for visitors. I thank you for summer, for when people who are visiting our area come and also visit us and visit with you as we gather together on Sunday mornings. And Father, we are grateful that we are called together as your children, uh, part of your family. Um, we are grateful for the salvation that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. And Holy Spirit, we are grateful for how you are working that out in our lives to this day. So we praise you. We thank you. We ask your blessings upon this time and this day. I pray for, uh, I pray for words. I pray that uh, you would take the words that I've written and thought about, and I pray that you would make them powerful in your name. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So as, as most of you know, we've actually completed the series that we were in in Galatians a couple of weeks ago. 22 weeks, started in January, went through the whole letter. It was an amazing time in that uh, for us and as how the Holy Spirit revealed some amazing things to us as a church. And I felt it was important that as we completed the series that we take three weeks and we look at the overall themes uh, that this letter is really about. Of course, the primary theme is it's about liberty, it's about freedom in Christ, and our chains are gone, our chains are broken. It's amazing. But Paul has structured the letter, or the Holy Spirit, I should say, structured the letter really in three parts. In the first two chapters, as we looked at last week, was Paul defending his apostolic authority by giving his bio, by basically giving his testimony of how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And then in the middle two chapters, it's more or less a theological treatise on salvation, on the gospel, which is what he was defending. And that's what we're going to look at today. And then next week, we'll look at his application of that in chapters uh, five and six, which is uh, really holiness, the pursuit of holiness. When we have this freedom in Christ that's been purchased to us, for us, this salvation, we are to pursue in this life today holiness. So today our goal is to look at the key theme of salvation. So I thought the first thing that we should do, and you guys who know me know me to be a person who asks a lot of questions. Questions are good. Um, and I think we need to ask a few questions so that we understand the scope of this subject. It's a big one, the subject of salvation. And we're not going to answer all of the questions today, but as a whole, I, I hope you will see that we, we more or less do. Some of the questions would be like this. Why do I need to be saved? I mean, that's, that's a preliminary question, but it's a good question. Why, in fact, do I even need to be saved? I mean, is there a problem, right? Uh, saved from what? Well, saved from God, you say, but, but why do I need to be saved from God? And those, of course, are really good skeptics' questions. They are. They're fair questions. What's with the salvation thing? Who invented this thing? Well, I guess God, the Bible, is where we get it from, the whole concept. But it seems to be in our hearts, too. Motion pictures, TVs, is all about a Savior. It's all about salvation. And so there you have these questions. But then from a, a Christian perspective, even at that point, when we begin to understand the gospel, we ask questions like, well, how can sinners be justified, accepted in the sight of a holy and righteous God, and a just God? How, how can a holy God forgive, honestly, sinful men? I mean, really, really sinful men and women. I mean, me, I'm average, but those really, really bad people, right? No, I'm just as bad. But isn't that the idea? I mean, how can God do that? I mean, it sounds nice, but where's the justice in that? It's a good question. 
But for a lot of people, the real question, the, the bottom line question is, once, once we begin hearing about this thing called salvation or this need for it, most human beings, I think, have this question. The bottom line question is this. Okay, okay, I, I understand the Bible says that there are sins, and sure, I'm not a perfect person, and I, I guess I need to be saved. So at the, at the end of it, what the, really the bottom line question is this. What do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to be do? What do I need to do to be saved? Well, before we look at Paul's answer, which we actually looked at in chapters 3 and 4 of this letter and this epistle, let's look at what Jesus said about this, how Jesus dealt with this question, because it's really quite amazing. So read with me. I'm just going to read it first, then I'll put a few of the key words or verses on screen. It's from Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Before this, it actually says that Jesus and his disciples were on a journey. Love that word, journey. We're going to follow up on that one in a minute. And it says this, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the man said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So let's highlight the first verse on the screen, and we'll unpack it a little bit this morning. And behold, a man came upon him saying, here's the question that all of us ask, every human being is asking, not just skeptics. Even people who are Christians today are still asking this question. He said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So let's remember... Paul's argument in his letter to the Galatians is that he didn't get his gospel from or through any human being, any man. He got it directly from Jesus Christ. And so this passage that we're looking at here today is evidence directly from Jesus, I think we'll see, that salvation is not by works of the law, which was Paul's argument, but by faith alone in Christ. So from the context and the other Gospels, it's obviously an important story. It's a true story. It's not a parable. It's a true story about a man who really did exist. But we can piece it all together, and it's why we come up with the title for this, this guy, this story, The Rich Young Man or The Rich Young Ruler. It's assumed because he knew the law so well that maybe he was a young ruler in the synagogue and in the church. And so here he is. He's at this point. Uh, And so what do we see? Well, Like many others in his day, many teachers and many individuals, thousands of people are following Jesus. He's doing incredible things. He's not only preaching the Sermon on the Mount and and just rocking people's world about what is sin and what isn't sin and how God sees it, but he's also performing incredible miracles. By this point, a lot of incredible miracles have been portrayed. So this guy's probably been following him for a little while and is pretty impressed But there's some things that we can look at about this guy. This guy is really, at this point in his life, he's really got it made in the shade. 
I mean, I think we could look at this guy a little bit like, like a 20-something tech mogul, okay? Like very wealthy, totally like billionaire, got enough money, no real worries, but I still have some questions about my life and want to make sure I got all things in a row. And, and I mean, we could see him maybe that way. He's young, he's made a ton of money, rather quickly, we assume, and maybe he's just a little overconfident. Maybe just a little. He opens with teacher. Most uh, commentators would say this is kind of like a nod to Jesus. He's showing some respect to Jesus. He's not calling him Lord. He's not even calling him rabbi. It's a slightly different word. He's calling him teacher. So he's showing some respect for Jesus. It's complimentary, you might think, but I don't think so based on what he says because he seems to be a little self-serving. Now, I know there are people who preach this sermon about this guy, and it's like, oh, he did all the right things. Well, if he did all the right things, how did he end up with the wrong answer for him? He's got a bit of an attitude, I think. And why do I say that? Well, his question. He says, what good good deed must I do? Like, he doesn't look around with all the people that are probably there because thousands of people were following Jesus and say, what do we need to do? No, it's personal. It's what I need to do. The I is important there. And this is so with all of us, I think. I think every one of us, uh, and I want you to think about this today. I want you to wrestle with this today. Every one of us thinks or has thought that we can save ourselves. At least we are capable of playing some role in our salvation. If not in coming to Christ in our initial salvation, certainly at this point in time in keeping it or improving our salvation or getting it back because we've messed up. Some of us have thought that way. Now here in Matthew's gospel, he asks, he asks what good deed he must do. But, but in Luke and Mark, he addresses Jesus as good teacher. It's a little different approach. Regardless, the point he's asking here is what he needs to do to be saved. It's a good question. It's actually a great question. Most of us would, if we, if we had a friend who was over for a party and we'd be witnessing to for a while, just doing life with them, or somebody at the cafe comes in and they know we're a Christian church and, and they walk up to one of our people and say, hey, you know, you believe in God, what do I need to do to be saved? I think most of us would fall over, right? Like, it'd be like, or would we be prepared to give the answer? Well, Jesus' answer is interesting. First, he deals with his perception that there is good apart from God. You see that? He deals with this man's perception that there's actually good apart from God. In fact, if you look at the phrasing closely, Jesus turns what is good from a deed, which in other words is an action, to a person, himself. I know when I read this that the the, the young man doesn't note that Jesus says there's only one who is good. Like you would think at that point he was going, whoa, 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 stop right there. Who is he? He doesn't. It's strange, really. Jesus says there's only one, and of course, in Mark's gospel, he tells them no one is good except God alone, who is standing right in front of you, young man. But here we have the crux. This young man actually thinks he's good. He's actually come to the conclusion, maybe it's because of his wealth and his success at such a young age, that he's, he's pretty good. I mean, who wouldn't, right, think that they're pretty successful and they're pretty good? at that point in their lives. I think, uh, actually, if you were to think about this, if you were to ask some of your best friends, your neighbors, people you, know, you, you walk with, and, and if you were to ask them, you know, are, are you a good person? I mean, 
if someone asked you that, right, are you a good person? I think most of us would say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect, but yeah, I'm, I'm a good person. So we shouldn't really knock this guy down too much, should we? Because he thinks he's a pretty good person. Well, Jesus needs to disabuse him <laughs> and us, I think, of this. So what does he do next? And what he does next is crucial to what Paul is teaching in Galatians. It's crucial. He says this, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Well, that's something that every Jew knew, right? That was the point. If you want to in inherit eternal life, if you want to be approved and accepted by God, you need to keep the commandments. So wait, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is Jesus actually saying he can save himself if he keeps the commandments? Well, apparently the young man thinks so. In the story, he does, right? He replies confidently, which ones? <laughs> like, you know the ten, there's ten of them, right? You know the Ten Commandments. You know the law of God. But he asks, which ones? And so Jesus gives him a list, look at this, of six commandments. Six. But we know there are how many? Ten. But he only gives him six. And they're all the last six of the Ten Commandments which deal with our human relationships. The young man doesn't pick up on this. And he answers, all of these I have kept. I think he's overconfident. What do I still lack, he asks. Talk about excelling at missing the great opportunity, right? Jesus is standing right in front of you, the one who is perfect, the one who can keep the law, the only one who is good, is right in front of him, and he misses the greatest opportunity of his life. So it's interesting that Jesus doesn't challenge him on that, does he? Jesus doesn't critique him and say, wait a second, you really think you kept all of those perfectly? Like, let me, like, remember the last time? Because I can see what you, no. He doesn't do that. But basically, he does know the truth. Jesus, not basically, he does know the truth. No one can keep the law except him. That's why he came. He's already said in Matthew 5, I came to fulfill the law. Not abolish it, but fulfill the law. And only he, he knows, so he knows he's the one. So what's going on with this guy? Is he lying? Is he delusional? <laughs> well, we don't know. And we don't have time to fully unpack it, but Jesus' answer tells us what we really do need to know. Jesus says this, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So Jesus knows that this man's not perfect. He knows that. And that he cannot keep the law. But Jesus also knows who this young man's God is. Because again, Jesus asked him which commandments did he keep? The last six. And God, he, Jesus purposely left out the top four, which are all about God. Loving God, honoring God, and trusting God. And so he knows who this young man's God is or what it is. His idol is his money. His God is his money and his power and his success. And Jesus notes that. And he says to him, if you give it all away, give to the poor, you, you will have treasure and in heaven. So again, we need to ask, is Jesus saying he can save himself by doing this one thing? Not at all. No. If you look at what he says right after that, he says, and come follow me, God in the flesh. Give up all that stuff, give up that life, the life that is your idol, that is your God, and follow me. 
He can't do it. He can't do it. It's a tragic story, really. And then we read, when the young man heard this, he went away, sorrowful, sad, for he had great possessions. This young man failed the greatest test of his life, of any life. He he was offered a choice between himself and God, between fulfillment here, between success here, between attainment here, between the best life that you can ever have now and life eternal with God. It's not a good bargain. It's not a good trade-off, is it? So the question was, what was more valuable to him, God and the life to come or his own will and his present life? So friends, I think we can be relatively certain that when Paul and Barnabas arrived in pagan, secular, Gentile Galatia, this was probably one of the main questions that was on the table. What do I need to do to be saved? It's a little bit like the question, right, that that the the people who were listening to Peter preach the first great gospel message in Acts chapter 2, they were cut to the heart and they said, what do we need to do? It's a good question. It's a really good question. And how did they answer? How did Paul and Barnabas answer in Galatia? The gospel. They gave them the gospel. The gospel is the real answer of how we are to be saved. And listen, we are saved from God, by God, and for God. Let me me repeat that. We are saved from God. We need to be saved from him. When people ask, why do I need to be saved? Because you need to be saved from God. You can only be saved by God and you are being saved for him. We get a great big benefit out of this, but it's actually for him and for his glory. So look what Paul says in Galatians 3.1. We've been over this, but look what he says. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So he reminds them that when he and Barnabas preached the gospel to them, when they, fir- when they first believed, the language here is literally this. We put the crucifixion, the cross of Jesus Christ, graphically on a billboard in town so that everybody could see it. I mean, that that literally is the the word in there, and everybody loves it. It's kind of like the word marketing, right, for publicly portrayed. they, They broadcast it. They broadcast the cross. And not just in, you know, like, well, he died on the cross. No, they went into detail about why he had to die on the cross and the kind of suffering and and abuse that he went through on the cross for you. And they too were cut to the heart, and they believed, and they came to faith in Jesus Christ. So in other words, they preached the cross. Paul's answer is always straightforward. Salvation is possible only through the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And most importantly, the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, is literally and shockingly this. Nothing. Oh, it's so counter, isn't it? It's so counter, everything we think. It's actually counter to a lot of things that we're taught in the church. I have to put a caveat here right now. Some of the things I'm going to say, if you're new here today, trust me, we are a traditional Orthodox Christian church. We're pretty conservative, okay? But some of the language that we use is intended, and the purpose of it is for us to really not just listen to traditions and things that have been taught before, because we might get the gospel wrong, but so that also we can go and share the gospel properly and effectively to people in our culture. So there's nothing that we do. Just believe and trust the gospel. So how do we do that, you might ask? That's a good question. We trust in Jesus and what he did alone, not on what we can do. You know this. 
Well, as you know, there's, this was too much for the false teachers in Galatia, the Judaizers, to handle, which is why they are in Galatia preaching this gospel of salvation by works. They'd heard Paul's gospel. They heard about what he was preaching, and they got to go down there and tell all the people in Galatia, wait a second. There is something you can do. As a matter of fact, there's something you must do. In order to be a Christian, you need to become Jewish first. You need to do the works of the law, and then you'll be saved. I'm not sure how that was working for them, but that's what they were saying. So let's recap a couple of things. You'll remember earlier in the series, I said some shocking things to you. <laughs> some of you have probably been in a church where people said, listen, what you need to do to become a Christian, need to do to become a Christian is, at the end of the service, I'm going to give you an opportunity to become a Christian. I'm going to give you an opportunity to come forward. You, know, coming, you need to come forward, and you're going to get to pray a prayer. And when you pray that prayer, you're going to be a Christian. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do. But the point is wrong. It leads some people to actually believe that they're participating in their salvation. By, by actually responding, oh, I responded. I remember when I responded. I, as part of my testimony, I responded. And I went down and I prayed this prayer. And it's a pretty important prayer because I, I, I had to get it right because if I didn't have all the aspects of the prayer, maybe I wasn't truly saved. And what I said to you a few months ago, some of you are looking at me blankly, but it's okay, you, I'll remind you. What I said is the truth is the scripture teaches us that before you even got here on that day or today, if today's the day that you choose to follow Christ, you don't choose, but if you are called to follow Christ, then it probably happened a week ago when you heard a podcast of somebody, a really gifted preacher, or, or you were reading the Bible for yourself, or right at this very moment, the Holy Spirit quickens your spirit, regenerates you, and when someone gives you the opportunity to come forward and say, I'm trusting Jesus, you became a Christian there, not here. Understand that? That's really important. It's really important that we understand the language of the gospel because we do not, hear me, we don't participate. I think that's exceedingly good news. I don't know about the rest of you, but that's why it's gospel good news. Because if it was up to me, where's the bar? Did I do it right? And here's the big deal. It just doesn't impact your coming to faith in Christ. It, it, it impacts the rest of your life. What you believe your Christian life is actually all about. I read a post, a testimony online this week, of a young man who's been attending a church for some time. It was actually an encouraging post. It was, you know, a testimony of how much uh, he, he loves God and he loves coming to this church, and, 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 and he really appreciated this church. Um, there was an element that I want to highlight for you today that potentially, I think, misses the truth of the gospel. And again, it's language. You know, I could have just misread him, but I've heard a lot of people say these kind of things before. He said that at, at this at one point in his, in his written testimony, to me, faith is a process. Sounds interesting. You see, he, as many do today, I think, think that we are all on a journey, right? We're all on a journey, a journey of discovery of faith on our way to Jesus. There are even churches that are called the journey. It's a good name. I think it's a great name. But can I ask this honest question? For those of you who know your Bible, who know Jesus, is it, it's an honest question. Is anyone really on a journey to faith in Christ? Let me ask you, was the rich young ruler on a journey to faith in Jesus Christ? I think there were probably some disciples sitting there going, Jesus, save this guy. Can you imagine how big his tithe is going to be? But I'm sure the disciples at various times were like, Jesus, you're Jesus. Why can't you save this person? That's a good question. It's not that he can't. So the truth is, not everyone's on a journey to God. That doesn't mean we don't love them. That doesn't mean we don't walk with them. 
But what do we do? I think many of us today believe the same thing. When we meet someone whom we care for, of course we want them to know Jesus so that they will be saved and have eternal life. I would hope every Christian feels that way. I hope it burns so much in your, in your heart and in your chest that you, you, you are proclaiming Jesus to people every week. I think if it, if it did, we would, right? We, we begin to care for these people, and of course, we want them to be saved. But when we think, okay, great, you know, they're, they're coming to my house, they're, they're, they're coming to a Bible study, or they're coming to church, and we think they're on a journey, then we think at that point in time, all we need to do is those two things that people say, love God, love them. And that's it. That's not the gospel. That's not what people did in Galatia, what Paul and Barnabas did in, in, in Galatia. So listen, here's a couple things just for us as a church. I want to make sure that everybody hears me on this. Of course, we want to be a church that is a safe place. Of course, we want to be a loving and supportive place, a place where everyone feels welcome, feels accepted. We want everyone who is on a journey of discovery of who God is, what he has done, who they are, and how then they should live. We want them to feel that they're welcome amongst us. Of course we do. There's a pastor back east in um, Barrie, Ontario. His name is Kerry Niewolf. Uh, he's a great blogger, author, um, and, and he writes uh, some uh, uh, blogs and, and articles for pastors and leaders, and, and he had one this week that I thought was tremendous. Uh, it was about five things that we do in the church that um, we got to stop doing or, or we need to do better uh, in order to be able to not only uh, raise up godly disciples who make disciples, but also effectively communicate the gospel to people. And, and, and he said this that recently in this article, one of his points was, legitimate doubt is prohibited in many churches. He said, if your church is the kind of church where like, real doubt is prohibited in the church, um, you're not going to reach the unchurched. And he said this, he said, honestly, I simply agree with this criticism. It's very difficult to have an honest conversation in many churches today. In many conservative churches, legitimate questions get dismissed with pat and often trite answers. Anybody? <laughs> Read your Bible. Jesus died for you. Amen. <laughs> pat and trite. In many liberal churches, he says... There is often so much ambiguity that questions that actually can be answered are left unresolved, as if leaders were taking people nowhere. Ouch. Ouch. So yes, yes, we want to be this kind of church, the kind of Christians who allow people to have their questions and their doubts, of course. But what I also hope, hope is true is this, is that we want truth proclaimed. I hope we want it proclaimed. And here's the deal then. For truth to be proclaimed, it needs to be claimed. Let me repeat that. In order for truth to be proclaimed, it needs to be claimed. Like I said last week, when it comes to the authority of God's words, God's word, we got to stand on it sometimes and say, you know what? No. That's what it says. I'm claiming that as truth. And therefore, yes, pastor, yes, me, proclaim it. We as Christians must know the word, stand on its authority, and claim truth. Not keep on questioning and doubting once we come to the cross and faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul gave us a great explanation, really, of how someone can be saved. I, I said to Matt, I leaned over him today as the team was singing this morning, going, wow, do you see that, that oceans there? I think it was oceans, call upon the name of the Lord. I said, that's, it. that's amazing, because I'm going to quote Romans 10 this morning. 
which means I'm not as the sharpest tool in the shed. Amen. Awesome. The Holy Spirit is. So Romans 10, verses 13 to 17 says this. Here's how people get saved. Here's how people get saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look at all the hows from this point. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And then he says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes, look at this. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So listen, we can love God and we can love others, but at some point we need to preach the good news. We need to take people to the cross. And you know what? It's not just my job. We're all in this together. I'm just the talking person on Sunday mornings. This is our role. We're all called to go and make disciples who make disciples. And the way for people to be saved is to give them the gospel. Preach Christ crucified to them. So let me show you this as we move to our conclusion today. And I'm going to state it up front and then try to show it to you. Faith is neither a process nor a journey. It's not a process or a journey. It's a gift from God. You cannot muster up your own faith to the point where I made a decision to receive Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel. Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, for, you guys know these verses. We, we, can, we can memorize these and quote them, but do you know this verse? By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, no one of us can boast that we had anything to do with God's grace, mercy, or the faith that he gave to us through the Holy Spirit regenerating us and bringing us to the point where we go, I believe in Jesus. I didn't do anything to do that. I just believe in Jesus. I know he's the son of God. So we read in Ephesians that we are saved by grace through faith. We know that grace is God's unmerited favor. Jesus got what he didn't deserve, our sins on the cross, and only because of that we get what we don't deserve. I love that. We get forgiveness, we get eternal life, we get salvation. It's the great exchange. But then we read, look, and this, what is this in that phrase, in that verse? Well, all of the foregoing, grace, salvation, and faith are not of our own doing, but a gift of God. Because if they were of our own doing, we would have something to boast in. We would be able to say, well, yeah, Jesus and me. I had something to do here with this here. That's a problem. So, listen, none of our journeying, getting our questions answered, debating creation evolution, the the virgin birth, the resurrection, none of these things that we did was part of a process that we participated in that increased our faith to the point where we made a decision for Jesus Christ. Does that sound strange to some of you? It should, because it's not what we're taught all the time. And again, there's a reason why I want us to get to this. So before we get to the conclusion, let me say this. Let's define faith a little bit. The Bible gives us a definition of what faith is. It's beautiful. It's all here. It's all in the book. Hebrews 11.1 says this. Now faith, 
is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I remember the first time I read this, I went, that is, that is not helpful. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's just confusing, isn't it? Because first of all, it's telling me that it's assurance and conviction of things I don't know about or I don't see. I can't see. I can't touch it. Show me your God. Literally, simply put, the biblical definition of faith is this. Trusting in something you cannot explicitly or otherwise prove. So it's a gift of God and from God. Not something we work to get, and it's fully trusting in something we cannot otherwise prove. Remember Romans 10 we read a few minutes ago? What did it say about where faith comes from? From hearing the word of Christ. Hearing the gospel preached. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. It is why Paul said this in Galatians 3, 23 to 26. He said, now before faith came, what, what do you mean faith came? Some nebulous thing that came out of the, the ether. And before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until who came? Faith came. Oh, no, no, wait, wait a second. Until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And then he concludes with, but now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Listen, the apostles at one point in time said to Jesus, because he's teaching all this stuff to them, and they're like, we're getting confused. (laughs) They were quite confused most of the time. And at one point in time, they actually asked a really good question of Jesus. It was actually more like a plea. Increase our faith, Jesus. That's a good prayer. If you're here today and you you have yet to commit to to trust in Jesus, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to give you that faith, to regenerate your heart so that all of a sudden you go, whoa, 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 whoa. Light bulb just went on. I believe this stuff. I really believe. I don't have all my answers to creation and evolution, to the virgin birth, to resurrection. It's not all settled for me. And I'm not going to go on to debate it endlessly for the rest of my life. No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for more faith. And ask God to make the simple reading of his word true to me so I understand it and I come to faith in Christ. In the Old Testament, God made faith available selectively. When we look at these verses, let me explain this. He gave it, Jesus actually, to Abraham. And as a result, Abraham trusted God and was accounted to him for righteousness. When Jesus came, faith became available to all who would believe or will believe. But listen, as we saw with the rich young man, Not all are on a journey that will result in salvation. Jesus had a conversation that maybe took 15, 20 minutes. Issue was settled. Not that Jesus wanted it settled that way, but that's what happened. So finally, let me show you what is a journey, what is a process. It's part of your and my salvation that we all call sanctification. This is a journey. This is a process. Paul writes in Galatians 3.3, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul's point here, remember, was to ask this. You know that it was the Spirit of the living God who quickened your spirit to trust and believe and have faith in Jesus Christ. You knew, you know, that's how that happened. Are you now trying to sanctify yourself, keep yourself saved, have yourself become better saved, more saved in your own flesh by your own actions and will? 
He's saying to them, that's the Holy Spirit's role. Go to him. You have him. Those of you who are rocksters know that we, uh, we, we put it this way. There are three aspects to salvation. It's not just coming to Jesus at the cross, praying a prayer, that one-time event that takes place in your life. That's called justification. That's when we are saved, yes. But we're saved at that point from the penalty of sin. And there is a penalty of sin. It's called death. But then, then we need sanctification, which is being saved from the very power of sin in this world today. How and by whom? The Holy Spirit. And then one day we will experience glorification where we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And look at this. We don't do anything in any of those spheres to receive that salvation. Again, is that not good news? Is that not good news? What we are left with then is to pursue holiness. Not questions, but holiness. So listen, if this is a little confusing, if this is a little bit much for you, you're in good company. After Jesus had taught this young man, this rich young ruler, he then went and said to all of his disciples, um, it's going to be very, very, very difficult for rich people to get into heaven. And he wasn't just talking about the rich. He was talking about people who had an idol, a God that they won't give up for God. And, and, and the disciples look at him and they're kind of like, and they said this. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible to save yourself. But with God, all things are possible. Amen? That's the good news. That's the gospel. Let's pray.